Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatic, and with me is Aaron Cameron. Today, we have a returning guest. Chris Spoke was last with us in 2018 talking about affordability, talk about inclusionary zoning and Yimbyism, which is yes, in my backyard. He would be somebody that developers wants to see at meetings, not angry neighbors. So while we did talk about inclusionary zoning last time Chris was with us, we are going to focus entirely on it. We're going to do a much deeper dive. I think last time we just got into it at a more superficial level. For anybody who wants to see what Chris is about, he is the editor of Skyline, which is a newsletter focused on housing. And to check it out, go to skylinenewsletter.com. Chris, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me again. I'm not doing this because Chris is on. I think I've said it many times on the podcast since. I think, Chris, when you were on, it was 2018, as Adam alluded to. And I don't think we really knew who you were. You kind of reached out and said, hey, can I come on? And I remember Adam being like, yeah, so this guy I reached out and not really sure what he knows or who he is or what he does, but I don't know. We were just looking for guests. I think you might have been like episode number 20 or something, like really kind of earlier on in the yeah. podcast. And you came on and you were talking about Yimbyism, as Adam mentioned, and your entity that you're involved with, Housing Matters, which was more public back then. And I think it's kind of evolved today. But you blew us away. We went from Yimbyism to your belief on inclusionary zoning and just some of the other strategies that you think could be better used to promote more housing and ultimately yeah. take a supply side approach to just affordability in Toronto. And I remember leaving that podcast going, holy crap, that guy knows his stuff and can really articulate a lot of the things that we all kind of know instinctively as real estate people, but Mm -hmm. weren't able to really kind of get it out. I left just blown away. And since then, now it's been four years, when people ask me my favorite episode, yours is Mm -hmm. still the one that I reference as saying, you got to listen to this episode. And so I think it's probably got one of our highest downloads simply for me just constantly pumping it. I actually went back today and listened to it for the first time since we recorded it four years ago. I think Adam will put it in the show notes and maybe I'll try to find out when it was recorded for those that are interested. Honestly, nothing's changed since that interview in 2018 about the supply right. side requirements, what needs to change. You were talking about judicial checks in the OMB, which had gone and came back. The challenges we have with just the zoning within our city, it really feels like we've made zero progress. The only yeah. thing that's changed is it's actually now less affordable than it was in 2018. You referenced $100 a month rents. Like, well, now you right. said $4,000 a month rents. And that's the only difference from 2018 to today. I just want to get that out there because I think it is really just interesting how four years on, and we're going to have more of a focus on inclusionary zoning, but it's around the same problem. It's the exact same right. problem. So that's very nice of you to say. So thank you. And I hope that people do enjoy it if they listen to it. I think that one thing that's changed, like one optimistic thing, I'll, I'll try to kind of like find the silver lining here is that when I was saying these things, basically like drawing the relationship between land use rules and affordability and how if we constrain supply with restrictive land use rules, we should expect expensive housing. That was kind of not broadly understood outside of maybe real estate professionals, academic economists, and these type of people. Whereas now housing is probably a top three issue in the federal election. And everybody's saying the supply thing. We need more supply. Like We know that this can't be solved with more rent control. We know that it can't be solved with more like first-time homebuyers credits. Ultimately, we need to build a lot more housing, which sounds like an obvious thing to say, but it was less obvious, I think, four years ago than it is today. So to the extent that with your help, we've got a few more people thinking about this relationship between land use rules and supply and affordability, I think that might've been helpful. I absolutely agree. It's a supply side issue. 
Any thoughts about some of the talk of vacancy decontrol out West or any of those more extreme measures that are meant to address or directly control the market? Yeah. So I think these are kind of like the stragglers that haven't yet caught up with the true problem. There was a great Scotiabank report released just a few months ago that showed that Canada has the fewest number of homes per capita of any G7 country. And when you think about that stat, and just to put it into more context, we would need to build 1.8 million units overnight to just match the average, not even to be on the high end, just to match the average. And we're building somewhere near 200,000 per year. That's our completion rate over the past few years. When you think about that, that there's just this drastic deficit of housing. You have a lot of people looking for housing. There's insufficient stock and you get into these kind of auction type scenarios where people bid prices up. It's kind of crazy to think that the way that you solve that is by controlling prices. What's missing is like physical boxes for people to live in. Prices reflect the scarcity of the resource, but you can't replace a lack of resources by tinkering with prices. So I think that's crazy. I think rent control is a bad idea. I think vacancy control is a really bad idea because you lose the one kind of release valve you have as a rental housing provider, which is to reset rents between tenants. So I'm optimistic that many more people are talking about supply. And to the extent that anybody's talking about rent and vacancy control, which they're not federally, by the way, I've read all platforms, I think it's a mistake. So hopefully we can talk more about supply and less about trying to control prices and imagine that somehow that will lead to more housing being available. We're going to stop doing this. We're going to get into the meat of this conversation, but I'm going to reference the previous episode one more time. And really, it's just because we want more listeners. So go back and listen to it. <laughs> we're talking about. But one of the things we did talk about was just the challenges between municipal politicians listening to the loudest voices versus your right. provincial controls or the province kind of stepping in and having more of a macro perspective and focusing on the region rather than focusing on the neighborhood, which is really the municipality politics epicenter or focus. Have you seen yeah. any changes in that? Are you seeing that there is a more at least buy-in from regional politicians or provincial politicians versus municipal politicians that, yeah, we need to work closer together? Not much, but two things that I'm optimistic about are, one, we have a municipal comprehensive review coming up next year where the city needs to update its official plan to comply with provincial policy, changes to the Planning Act, provincial policy statement, and so forth. The province, I think, has introduced good language into these policy documents. I'm looking forward to like a meaningful update to the official plan that reflects that policy. We'll see. In the past, the province hasn't been very rigorous in ensuring compliance in municipal kind of updates. So hopefully they do. The second thing is this shift from, uh, and I know we're kind of going in the weeds in a different direction, but this shift from Section 37 program, which is a density bonusing program where if you apply for more density than the zoning bylaw allows for, you have this basically ad hoc negotiation with the council where they could extract some money from you as a developer. We're shifting from that framework to a community benefits charge framework, which will be more formulaic, I think should reduce the power that individual counselors have to basically extort developers anytime they propose significant density. So we're still waiting for the final regulations to be set. But I think those two changes could be meaningful. I think the reintroduction of the LPAT, now OLT, was absolutely necessary. So to the extent that Bill 108 reversed a lot of Bill 139 measures, I think that's great. But councillors are still kind of kings of their wards. I think the province has been a little bit more aggressive than previous provinces, but it should do 10 times more than it has done. Because as you mentioned, despite all of this, housing is more expensive today than ever. So obviously, we haven't solved the problem. We need to do a lot more. That previous episode was from October 20th, 2018. Open up your podcatcher app, whatever it's called, and scroll down yeah. this commercial real estate podcast list, and you can go listen to it and understand a little bit more about you know Chris's background. Okay. Let's go. Inclusionary zoning. Adam, do you got a question you want to start off with? What is inclusionary zoning? 
That's yeah. the question probably half of our listeners are wondering right now. It sounds like a nice thing, like zoning, people kind of accept as a fact of life and an inclusionary, right? Sounds great. It's much better than exclusionary. So what is it? Inclusionary zoning is basically requirements that municipalities require that new projects provide a certain percentage of their gross floor area, so a certain number of units as affordable housing. That percentage varies kind of from city to city, and the definition of affordability varies from city to city. So the logic is, if in Toronto, we're building something like 20,000 units per year, and we could require that 20% of these are affordable, we might have 4,000 new affordable housing units produced every year. And maybe that sounds like a good idea. So cities do this across North America, across Western Europe. There's a lot of nuance that we could dive into, into how you might design and implement these requirements. Two big categorical differences from city to city is one, some cities have a voluntary program. So a city might say that you could build up to 10 stories, but if you'd like to build up to 12 stories, we're going to require that some of those additional units be secured as affordable housing. So that's like a voluntary inclusionary zoning policy. And then another big categorical difference is between municipalities that offer offsets and those that don't offer offsets. So if you're a developer and you're looking at your pro forma, which has a revenue side and a cost side, inclusionary zoning requirements reduce the revenue on your revenue side. So it acts in effect as a cost on your pro forma. So some municipalities say, to make sure that the economic feasibility of development projects isn't impacted, we're going to offset that cost by either waiving development charges, offering you more density than we otherwise might do, providing you with tax credits. Toronto has decided, this is not final, but we're moving in this direction. We have some draft policies that have already made their way to council, has decided to implement a mandatory, within certain areas, mandatory program with no offsets. So in my view, kind of the worst way to do this. And we could talk more about why that might be. Well, let's go into it. What is the mandatory offset? Before we get into the nitty gritty of the Toronto proposals, maybe we should spend a little bit more time on just what it is. So you broadly explain the nuances of inclusionary zoning. The reality is it's the city's attempt to introduce more affordable units as developers come in. I think at a really high level, and I'm just trying to maybe capture this simply, what it means is if a developer was building property, and I'll use pretend numbers, they got to build it to the budget for that build, including land and everything, is $10 million. They're going to build it at $10 million because they can sell the condo units using condos, or they can rent out the apartment units right. at a number that makes more than $10 million because they got to get more than the money it takes to build the thing. I mean, these are profit-oriented entities, of course, right? It's capitalism 101. If all of a sudden there are affordability controls, meaning either they have to sell units at a discount or rent units at a discount, all of a sudden they may not be able to achieve that $10 million threshold, because that's what it still costs to build that same structure. It's not cheaper, right? You still got to build the bathrooms and the kitchens and the roof and all that kind of stuff, the underground parking, etc. And so here's the crux. Who pays that difference? Is it the developer that has to eat it? Well, if the developer has to eat it, they're not building the building in the first place. No matter what you do, it's still going to cost $10 million to develop it. So then all the nuances you're talking about, whether it's all across North America, Western Europe, is trying to figure out who takes on the obligation in that municipality or whatever the jurisdiction is that's putting the inclusionary zoning in for the difference between what it costs to build versus what the profit should be for that developer to build that building at market, assuming they could have achieved or could have sold those units or rented those units at market. Is that more or less in a nutshell? I think that's right. I think that the motivation, which I think is worth mentioning, the motivation here is that municipal councillors are trying to accomplish three things. They would like to see more affordable housing but they don't want to spend any money on more affordable housing because they have other budget priorities and resources are scarce. They also don't want to have to like 
upzone land because that leads to all sorts of NIMI pushback. And that was a big part of our discussion last time. So how can you accomplish these three things? Well, one way you might be able to accomplish these three things is take development projects that are already proceeding and just require that those developers give you units that you could secure as affordable housing. So it's kind of being pitched and positioned as something like a free lunch. And the economic justification to get to your question of like who bears this cost The economic justification is that ultimately it'll be landowners that bear the cost. It's three groups that might, in theory, bear the cost. You have purchasers of the other units, the non-affordable units. So maybe their prices increase and they bear some of that cost. You have the developer who requires a margin when building their building. They might eat this cost by just having a less profitable project. Or it might be the landowner who's seen appreciation in their land values over a number of years. And this will kind of reverse that. So as a developer, when you're looking at a project, you're looking at a pro forma, you're starting with what you think the expected revenue could be, what you think your expected costs will be, and ultimately you land at a residual land value, and that's what you could pay for your land. If your revenue is lower than it otherwise would be, because now 10, 20% of your units have to be priced below market, you could only afford to pay a lower number for that land. So the pitch is that this is kind of like a free lunch, not only because you don't have to spend budget funds on affordable housing, you don't have to upzone, but also it just comes out of landowners, land values, and these land values are kind of unearned. So to give a little bit of background, so inclusionary zoning was first legislated in Ontario in 2017. The province gave municipalities the power to implement inclusionary zoning requirements. In 2018, when the Ford government was elected, they reduced that ability to just within what are called major transit station areas. So this is typically within like 800 meters of subway stations or GO stations. And again, the logic is that landowners in those areas have benefited from the spillover effects of this infrastructure. So we're just going to kind of claw some of that value back by throwing this new requirement on that land. If you build on this land, you need to give us some affordable units. And I think this theory is pretty good. I think where it gets messy, where it gets complicated, and where it ultimately could have a negative impact on affordability is that we started this conversation by saying, basically, housing is expensive because there's not enough of it. So whenever you propose a remedy to this problem, you have to think, is this going to lead to more housing or less housing? And I think if a lot of landowners in these major transit station areas see that their land post-inclusionary zoning requirement is now worth 20 30% less than it was before, they might not sell it to a developer at that reduced price to be put into productive use. They might just hold on to it and wait for the market to catch back up to their expectations. So we might see this lag between when the requirement is implemented and when these landowners are willing to take that haircut and put the land into productive use as development sites. What of that, Chris, you might have somebody that, let's say they bought the land because it was a retail plaza in the 1960s and they've owned it for a long period of time and now they want to sell it. But now as a result of inclusionary zoning, that price is reduced. And so they may decide to hold on to it for 10 more years. But of course, as we've talked about many, many times with our developer interviewers, interviewees, I guess, there's a whole bunch of land that they've been acquiring over period of time for the purposes solely of development, right? And so if all of a sudden that price of that land changes, maybe just they're just not going to develop anything at the time, yeah. right? It's not just necessarily the landowner who's selling to a developer, maybe the developer that's already attempted to get into that land. So anyway, I think you I, might end up in this weird situation where major transit station areas were implemented. This framework was implemented to drive more density to major transit station areas. But now we're introducing this disincentive to build in major transit station areas, an inclusionary zoning requirement. So you might end up in this weird situation where you actually you see people building just outside of those boundaries because the requirement doesn't apply. And we basically kind of undo the point of the policy in the first place. 
I'll also just say as a general point for listeners who have listened to the first episode and this one, you'll notice right away that this is like a less fun discussion than that one, because it's a little bit more insidious. When you see people showing up to development community meetings, opposing new development, it's a very straightforward logic. They want to block new housing. Therefore, fewer people will have housing. Here, we have to think about second order effects and unintended consequences. And I think this is why inclusionary zoning has gained so much traction as this silver bullet is because it sounds good. The first order effect kind of makes sense. We're building anyway. Let's take 20% of that and make it affordable. And you really have to think about the second order effects and the disincentives that it introduces to realize why it might not be such a good idea. And you lose like 80% of your audience at that point. But it's a really important thing because, again, if housing is expensive because there's not enough of it, are we about to implement a policy that will lead to even less housing being built? And if we are, then we're just kind of making this thing much worse. Is there a tweak that you could see to the existing structure that would make it more viable? Or is this put it in the garbage can and look for something else? There are tweaks, definitely, that would make it more viable. You can say affordable housing is a social obligation. We want to make sure that our lowest income households have places to live. We think that we should provide them with below market rate housing. The question is, who should pay for that? Is it just landowners? Because if it is, you might rationalize why that might be fair because they have this unearned appreciation. But in the real world, if they don't put that land into development, then you're not getting the outcome that you want. Or is it the broader society? Should we be contributing in some way to provide this affordable housing? And if we are, this is where the discussion of offsets come into place. So if we say that there's a cost to a development project to require affordable housing units in a development project, in my view, you should have proportional offsetting benefits. And these could be benefits in the form of waivers on your development charges, reduction in your community benefit charges, which is a new thing that's coming into place. Again, that's replaced in Section 37. Or you might get some sort of density bonus where you can build more density in exchange for this inclusionary zoning provision. The tricky part about density bonusing in Toronto as opposed to other cities, most other major cities in North America have real zoning. So if the zoning bylaw says you could build eight stories, you could build eight stories. We haven't meaningfully updated our zoning bylaw in over 60 years. If the zoning bylaw says you could build four stories at the corner of Young and Eglinton, you could probably build like 60 stories. It doesn't mean anything. So we have no real baseline of zoning permitted density to then be able to say like, this will be a bonus. There's no good kind of formula to do that. So You can build six stories at Young and Eglinton now. Yeah, exactly. There's yeah. 20% more on the current bonus. Zoning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think inclusionary zoning gets better if you provide offsets. But my preferred solution is that we realize that the reason why housing is expensive is not because we're not taxing developers enough. It's because we're not building enough housing. Let's focus on real meaningful reform, like land use rule liberalization. Let's upzone more neighborhoods. Let's allow for missing middle housing everywhere. Let's allow for more like high density nodes here and there. Not kind of be distracted by this thing. One other quick point is that if you think about this cynically, which after four years of looking into this stuff, I tend to do. You might end up in a situation where, so downtown council has two objectives. They both want to tell their people, their constituents that they care about affordable housing, and they also want to block all new development. And inclusionary zoning accomplishes both of those things. They can vote for inclusionary zoning, so they can be the champion of, of affordable housing, while knowing that this will completely crush the economic feasibility of development projects in their wards. And it's like they got two birds at once. On that topic of the voting citizens' general impression of this, do you see widespread acceptance of offsets? Do you see that being widely accepted that you would be essentially rewarding developers for this? I know there's already systems in place to do this, but this sounds like it'd be more widespread because that does not play well either because landowners get tarred and feathered as the big bad actors in society. I don't. I think that one of the kind of problems with unaffordable housing is the worse the problem becomes, 
it kind of seems like the worse the proposed solutions become. So if you see that rents are rising very rapidly, there's more of an outcry for rent control and vacancy control, which has all these negative effects that might make the problem worse. And I think it's the same thing here. I think that there are housing nerds like you guys, like me, that really dive into the details here. But most people are limited. They kind of stick to what is inclusionary zoning? Okay, I kind of get it. What is the percentage of GFA that's going to be requested? And if it's 5%, why not 20%? Why not 30%? The more, the better. So unfortunately, I don't think this is like the sort of thing that you could have a mass education campaign and hope for public outcry. I think you really need to kind of illustrate to the planners who are working on these draft bylaws and these draft official plan amendments and kind of walk them through the logic of what the adverse consequences would be and hope that some sanity prevails. What you might also do is just hope that the province steps in and the municipalities implement too strict of a set of requirements. The province steps in and kind of pairs them back. I think the province, when they limited IZ to major transit station areas, they should have either just killed this framework altogether or at least introduced some guardrails that municipalities might play within so that you might say that we're okay with inclusionary zoning. This is not a terrible idea, but we need to have proportional offsets to ensure that we're not disincentivizing new housing supply. It is interesting, and I'm trying to play devil's advocate to a certain degree. I mean, the logic of there being some zoning incentives to include affordable units, I can see why that's attractive. Whether I agree with the economics behind the scenes or not, whether I even think that the numbers could make sense or not is irrelevant. The idea that, and you referenced it, members of our society, that we want to make sure there is affordable housing and not in hyper-suburban areas, in central areas. And so there needs to be some, whether it's emotional or not, I get it. Like, yeah, you're right. We can't just say, well, hey, if you're making minimum wage, you got to go live way out in the middle of nowhere and commute two hours to work. We got to be able to offer them something in a more central location. And then you talked about how the logic for this is that when they go to sell the land, I use the example of you know the individual that bought a retail plaza at some major intersection for $30,000 in 1960. Now they're going to sell it for $30 million. And so they're just benefiting right. from the appreciation of land. And so, hey, now that it's inclusionary zone, they sell it for $23 million, whatever. They're still making lots and lots and lots of money. And that difference between market at 30 and 23 million with the inclusionary zoning, they're the ones bearing the cost. So they still get it. I guess what's challenging is that if it was a developer that bought that land two years ago at a future market price, like they were inflating the price of the land because they knew they were going to develop it in three years and they were projecting what they could build at that time, they're all of a sudden now too far deep. Again, for those that just follow the economics really quickly, land costs, land prices, it's a big component of the development cost. And so when you buy that land, like you're pot committed at that point and you're pot committed based on I can build X and get Y return based on what I can ever sell or rent the units at. If all of a sudden there's inclusionary zoning slapped on and you know you cannot sell at whatever you projected it to be, now there's no point developing because now you're pot committed at that 30 million or whatever the prices you paid for the land, but there's no point developing. I just got to sit on this land until I get to a point where development makes sense again for me. And so I'm wondering, okay, now we're just playing what if. Can't you just tweak it and say, if you've owned the land for longer than 20 years, you don't get the benefit. If you just bought it, you're going to get grandfathered through the inclusionary zoning? So probably yes. I think there's this quote that I really like by Friedrich Hayek, who's an economist, and it's curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they know about what they imagine they can design. So I think people, when they run into unintended consequences of policy, instead of kind of like taking a step back and undoing that change, they like add another change and another change and another change. And the systems become more complex and more likely to lead to even more unintended consequences. So as an example, you're a longtime landowner You've seen all this appreciation, 
And yes, there's a good argument to be made that it wasn't earned, right? It wasn't like your sweat that led to the subway being built two blocks away, but it was. And you benefited from the land lift that comes with that. Your neighbor sells their land for $10 million this year. Next year, your land, which is same dimensions, same size of plot. Next year, yours is worth $8 million. I think there's a scenario where you don't want to take that haircut. The guy next door got $10 million. You are only going to get $8 million. Maybe you're just going to wait a few years for the market to catch back up to what your expectation is. And it's hard to kind of like think through the game theory and think through how people will react to these things. But I do think that over the long term, the theory is sound. Over the long term, land prices will absorb this requirement and will keep on chugging. The problem is that housing is expensive today. We know why it's expensive. It's expensive because there's not enough of it. And there's not enough of it because of these land use rules we've talked about. So why are we spending so much time talking on a problem that even if just in the short term could make the problem worse instead of focusing on solutions that can make the problem better? You also have scenarios in some parts of the city. If you think about inclusionary zoning, even outside of Toronto's context, just the theory of it, it reduces land values because land values absorb the requirement. There are some parts of the city where even with free land, you don't have a development site. And the reason for that is, let's say condos are selling, you guys have better and more recent data than I do. Condos are selling for 2,500 per square foot in Yorkville, but they're only selling for 750 per square foot at Martin Grove and Finch. Even with free land, your free land is, first of all, it's not going to be $1,000 per buildable square foot cheaper out at Martin Grove and Finch. Your construction costs are largely the same. Your development charges are the same. Your soft costs, all your design costs are largely the same. There are parts of the city, the reason why we don't see a ton of development in the northwest, northeast of the city is because even with free land, it's not economic. So when you add an additional requirement that would in, let's say, Yorkville, reduce the values of land by 20% to absorb that requirement, there's nowhere lower to go in large parts of the city. So you just kind of expand the area within which development is not economic. The way that we've tried to counter that problem in Toronto is, again, limiting the requirement to major transit station areas, which are typically higher land value areas. Even these major transit station areas will be categorized as being strong market areas versus weak market areas. And weak market areas will have lesser requirements than strong market areas. I'm just trying to like illustrate the fact that, again, you're getting into a situation where you have to try to think of every possible scenario and every possible incentive and expectation that landowners have to ensure that this new requirement doesn't decrease housing supply. One other quick thing I'll say is that the city in drafting their staff report and their draft official plan amendment and zoning bylaw amendment, they commissioned a planning firm called NBLC to do an analysis to kind of highlight what the risks and the opportunities were with inclusionary zoning. In that report, there are very explicit cautions that this is a possible unintended consequence that this will have a negative impact on land values, that land might not trade or not go into development to the extent that it has over the past few years, and that we might see a decrease in development activity and land supply. So this is not us just kind of like thinking through the economics on a podcast. This is in the city's own commission report. It says this very explicitly, but that doesn't seem to be kind of changing the direction of the requirements. So in the absence of somebody from the city listening to this podcast and taking notes, Where do you see this playing out over the next couple of years without any of the changes that you see as beneficial being introduced? We have you back in the podcast a couple of years from now. Again, what do you think has transpired? One interesting thing with these planning changes is because they're done at the municipal level, we have a lot of potentially comparable cities to look to. So other cities have implemented inclusionary zoning. So we might want to take a look at how it's gone in these other cities. And again, some cities have done it in a voluntary fashion, some in a mandatory fashion, some with offsets, some without. 
The city that I look to as the most comparable to Toronto is Portland, because Portland introduced in, I believe it was late 2016, and the requirement came into effect in February 2017, introduced a strong IZ, inclusionary zoning requirement, that was both mandatory and did not provide offsets. What we've seen in Portland since then is they were averaging something like 4,500 housing completions per year pre-inclusionary zoning. And in 2020, that was cut by two-thirds to 1,500 housing completions in that year. In 2021, we're still waiting on the data. But we saw a dramatic fall-off in the housing completion rate following the introduction of inclusionary zoning. Where's affordability in Portland now? Presumably, things have gotten more expensive. Things have gotten more expensive. Affordability is a funny word, right? Because we talk about affordable housing with a capital A and with a lowercase a. Affordable housing with a capital A really means below market rate housing. Within that category, we could be talking about rent geared to income housing. We could be talking about housing that's some ratio of average market rents. And then there's affordable housing or housing affordability across the board. How many people could afford housing? And really, that's just a direct function of the supply. If you build 100 units in a neighborhood instead of 10, then 90 more households could afford housing in that neighborhood than could otherwise. So if you think about housing affordability as just how many homes are there available for people to afford and to live in, which I think is the most accurate reflection of affordability, Portland's seen a dramatic drop-off in the number of new housing completions every year, and it's been a disaster. They're now, by the way, to your point of whether we could keep tweaking this policy to limit the negative effects, they are looking to tweak the policy, and they'll probably tweak the policy, wait for two more years to see how it plays out, tweak it again, and repeat the cycle all over again. I guess we just have to decide for ourselves, like, is this an acute and important issue that needs to be addressed in the most effective way in the short term, or are we okay tinkering on policy for the next 10 years and waiting until Toronto's as unaffordable as San Francisco and Manhattan before we start revisiting some of our assumptions. This is hypothetical, of course, Chris, but if there was a city staff member sitting here advocating for inclusionary zoning, likely they could say, well, yeah, but Portland's one example, but here's another example where, look, it works. Maybe that's not true, but are you aware of others where that is the scenario, or at least it would appear that inclusionary zoning can not impact the small right. a affordability of housing in that jurisdiction. So inclusionary zoning works best or has the least negative effect where it's voluntary and where there are offsets. And if we had a voluntary program with offsets, I think it'd be much less of a problem. There's this paradox with inclusionary zoning where the weaker the requirement, so the smaller the number of affordable units delivers every year, which means it's a smaller obligation on the development ecosystem as a whole, the less of a negative impact it has. So an effective inclusionary zoning policy that doesn't have an adverse effect on overall supply delivers very few affordable units. As soon as you try to deliver more affordable units, again, without offsets, then necessarily you're imposing more of a cost on the ecosystem as a whole. It's borne by landowners, and you typically get a reduction in supply. What I would say to that planner is to look at these kind of cross-city comparisons. Take a look at Portland. By the way, the rhetoric from the Portland City Council and the planning department is almost kind of like word for word what we're hearing from ours, which is that developers have been making out like bandits, landowners have been making out like bandits, and maybe they have, but I think we need to deal with what do we care about? Do we care about punishing bandits or do we care about housing supply and affordability? So they've been saying all the same things. And again, they accomplished this dual goal, this cynical dual goal of both being the champions of affordable housing while reducing development, which they didn't really want in their neighborhoods in the first place. But I guess it's probably worth mentioning as well that developer profitability has dramatically reduced over the last decade for active developments. I mean, I remember you know speaking with condo developers 10 years ago and the expectation was you know well north of 20. And now I think it's just trying to keep it in double digits 
or maybe even to the teens. So it's not as profitable as it was. I mean, you know, made out like bandits, maybe, maybe not. I'll pander to our audience and say no. But I guess the difference is ultimately there is a cost to this. And if it gets put entirely on the private market, that's when you see less development. If you can transfer to government, which is not profit driven, then you don't. But either way, there is a loss here somewhere that has to be sustained. Then ultimately, of course, as you did highlight at the beginning, there is the option of transferring it over to market renters or market owners. It is definitely a messy solution. Outside of inclusionary zoning, do you see any proposed systems that have the same result without that playing hot potato with a financial loss? So if we're talking about below market rate housing, you're right, there is a cost because it's below market rate. So there needs to be a subsidy that comes from somewhere. In the case of inclusionary zoning, it mostly comes from landowners. Again, if we think that we have a social obligation to provide below market rate units, which I think we do, then that should come from general tax revenues. By the way, another problem with inclusionary zoning is if you just care about the raw number of affordable units you have to make available to people who need them, inclusionary zoning, you're really paying in an indirect way for the most expensive possible units, right? Because they're brand new. The newer unit of housing, the more expensive it is, both because it hasn't had any time to depreciate, but also new buildings have higher requirements in terms of amenity area requirements. They have higher requirements in terms of Toronto Green Standard, kind of environmental stuff. Whereas the cost that you're incurring to secure 10 inclusionary zoning units, brand new units and brand new buildings, you might buy old inventory, existing inventory, and maybe get 15 units. So I think both society as a whole should bear this cost of providing below market rate housing to vulnerable people. And we should also do it in the most cost effective way possible, which is not to pay the highest possible prices for the most new units when we could stretch those dollars much farther by doing it a different way. Unfortunately, Chris, we're running out of time. I think we're just going to have to book you again for maybe less than four years from now. Let's keep going (laughs) because clearly this is not a solution that gets solved overnight. And as we've discovered since our conversation four years ago, moves very, very slowly. But it's complicated. I think it's worth just continuing to discuss because whether it's inclusionary zoning or something else, I mean, we vaguely brushed over rent control or vacancy decontrol, etc. There are lots of different ways in which we're getting challenged for of a full on. Just we need to build more. So get out of our way, let us build more. I want to make one really just interesting comment that I think is just meaningful. There's developers getting off like bandits, maybe, maybe not. The reality is many of our largest developers in this country that are being impacted by these types of things are pension funds, life insurance companies, real estate investment trusts, who the shareholders and the benefactors of all of this stuff are your neighbors and you and I and our parents, etc. It's not just some guy that likes to buy Lamborghinis and yachts. That just occurs less and less and less these days in our environment. Chris, thanks so much for taking the time. Really, really enjoyed the conversation. As always, you are my favorite guest. I'm sorry to all the other guests. Just plug (laughs) your ears. I find it just very, very fascinating, very informative. And you seem to always be able to articulate things that I'm thinking, but just can't put the words the way that you do. So thanks very much for that. I really appreciate the time. Thanks for having me. Happy to come back anytime. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast after show where Aaron and I will share our thoughts on the episode that uh, just went down. Returning guest, got to be one of our favorite guests, super knowledgeable, super passionate. You know, another aspect that isn't always present in real estate the world, but uh, yeah, wow, Chris has just all cylinders firing and a whole lot of heart behind what he's saying. It's, it's, it's really fun talking to him. I'm glad we had him back on. It probably should have been sooner in uh, all reality. By the time, it was great because, of course, you know, all the issues he's talking about, you know, inclusionary zoning being the, the big one, 
is very topical, at least here in Toronto right now. You know, our, our city council is going over going over inclusionary zoning at, at the moment. So perfect time to have him back on. And then I guess, you know, maybe logically will follow, we'll have him back on sooner rather than later, because I think that Toronto is due for, uh, for a shift here. I've been doing a ton of research on inclusionary zoning or IZ, as it's easier to say, and, and IZ, I don't know, whatever one you want. It's what I found it really hard. I wasn't sure. I don't think I really got it out during the interview with Chris, where it's like, like, <laughs> I'm all for it. Like I truly am. I think this is a potentially great initiative for all cities and municipalities that are struggling with affordability because it, it is important for the social fabric to have people that live close to their work. And if the major urban cores is where the majority of employment is, then there needs to be people that live in those areas that can get to work. And of course, you know, major urban centers not all jobs are, you know, white collar or everybody's sitting behind a computer. Like there's lots and lots and lots of other employment opportunities that are, you know, run the gamut. Does that mean you're for affordable housing or does it mean you're specifically for inclusionary zoning? Well, inclusionary I, I, zoning I, I, is I one guess, tool to get us there, right? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. But I, I mean, I've yet to actually, I mean, other than the one that we talked about where it's, you give the, it's almost like a, like a affordability passport, right? That follows the individual versus the residents which I think is harder to administer and clearly just hasn't picked up the traction. So if inclusionary zoning is the one, because I mean, I think I saw an article the other day where 800 municipalities, and I can't remember if that's North America or or globally, but there's, you know, there's a lot of this going on around the globe in areas in which affordability is a concern. Again, typically major urban areas, right? Where they, the supply can't keep up. I mean, there, maybe that's the crux. If you just allow the supply to keep up, then you wouldn't have this affordability issue in the first place. Okay, fine. So I'm talking in circles now, but it makes sense, right? It does make sense to try to figure out a way to provide some affordability within a non-affordable area. And the crux, it really comes down to it. I just don't think we made it really clear. Maybe Chris did, and I just, you know, he's too smart for me. I don't understand it. But it, as long as you're providing a even the give back, the reward for the developer or the builder or whoever to provide those affordable units, as long as it equals net zero as far as their bottom line, then it doesn't change anything. And all of a sudden now you're giving, you're giving back to the community, right? And I think that's, that's, that's just an interesting, really interesting concept, right? Because I've been reading some articles recently because it's been coming you know, more top of mind in, in Toronto, particularly right now, because it's coming out or presumably, I mean, everybody said it's going to be approved. And you read it and, and some of the articles, and whoever's writing it, I don't really pay attention to left wing, right wing, but, but predominantly it's the developers don't deserve that give back. Sorry, I can't remember what the actual term is. Incentive for... Uh... Yeah, the incentive. Yeah, right. Like the you provide affordable housing and here's the equal amount back to you to ensure that you do that, right? And so, if, and right now the narrative all over the place is, well, but developers are making so much money offsets. Thank you. It's called offsets. So as long as the developers are getting the, are getting the offsets, it makes perfect sense. As long as you're, as long as you're offsetting the cost of the developer in order to develop those units and provide it to the to society. It's, it the works perfectly, but right now and in Toronto, the way that the whole policy is written is there are no offsets, and the whole narrative is, well, the developers are making so much money already, they'll just absorb that offset and keep building what they're building. So whatever, and I don't, I guess it's just almost, I don't know if it's an ignorance, like you and I, and, and I think the majority of our listeners who are in the real estate community, like they know that, like yeah, our developers are not obviously building for no profit, but they're building for a profit. 
require a return that matches the risk they're taking, right? It's that risk reward continuum, right? Like it's an incredibly risky endeavor. Therefore, the reward's equal. In a world in the last 20 years where rents have appreciated, cap rates have depreciated, everything has worked out perfectly favorably for, for the real estate community. And yet there are developers going bankrupt every year because there are still risks to doing that business. Not a lot of apartment owners are going bankrupt because they just you know collect rents and pay expenses and a, a way their, their profits appreciate. The developers are really taking on serious risk. So there, there is some profit to it. But as soon as you add this inclusionary zoning concept and therefore make the affordable units required and therefore decrease that profit even further, the returns even further, the developers go, well, the reward, the return doesn't match the risk anymore. And so I'm just not going to build. And that's, that's the crux. I just think it gets lost right now. I say, well, yeah, developers are already making 15% return on their investment. So whatever, they're making 10%. Well, but if they're making 10%, there's probably lots of other ways they can spend their money and earn 10% that aren't nearly as risky as spending five years building a 300-unit tower, right? Like it just it doesn't add up anymore at that level. And I think I don't, for whatever reason, that gets lost. As you read all these news articles and all these people on social media and wherever you get your news, I think people just forget that. It's like, well, they're making so much money. Well, no, they're making that much money because it's super risky, right? Like that's that's what I think people lose right now. And I don't know how to convey it any more simply than that. You get return based on the risk you're taking when you invest your money. That's why when you buy a government of Canada bond, it's a 1.6% return or whatever it is today because it's zero risk. So you get 1% return for zero risk. You get 15% return for lots of risk. And then there's a continuum in the middle. But as soon as you start lowering that return by things like inclusionary zoning, the decisions will turn to, well, I can, I can make that return at far less investment, far less risky investments. And so therefore, no more building. And that's the problem, right? Well, yeah, I think I've, uh, I've, I've said it on this podcast, and I know I said it at the apartment conference just a couple of months ago, but the... Yeah, the risk reward ratio is out of whack, but it's been it's been getting compressed, compressed, compressed. When I started at First National in 2012, you talked to condo developers then, and they're kind of expecting you know 20% return, and it's now getting into low teens or maybe even below te- teens or down to single digit. You know, there's some very thin projects out there. You know, the other metric, of course, would be comparing buying you know a, a stabilized apartment to building one. You know, the traditionally the gap. You know, the market kind of said that there should be a 200 basis point lift. You should be building to a cap rate that's going to be 200 beeps wider to account for that risk. And now you see projects that are, you know, 50 beeps, 75 beeps wide of that. So I've said numerous times that we're not seeing, we're not seeing development rewarded for the risk that you, that is inherent in it. Because yeah, as you said, you, you know, in, a, in any downturn, the first people going to be filing for bankruptcy are developers. You know, that's, it's the, definitely the riskiest slice of the, the real estate world. And so is there room to apply further negative pressure on returns? You know, I'm sure we've already had developers drop out of the game because there was not, uh, you know, the profit that they, they wanted or sought. So is there further pressure from inclusionary zoning, further diminishing the number of people that want to build? Is that great for, for a renter's environment? Probably not. But yeah, it's, and, you know, and, and offsets, you know, that's, it poses its own problem too, because of course those offsets basically just transfer that loss to, uh, to the government. Uh, who's in a better position to state it than developers, obviously, but there is still, you know, a loss somewhere that somebody is taking, you know, as always, do we have the solution? <laughs> I, no, I don't know for that no. far down the path, but. <laughs> no, we don't. I guess there's this concept of the offsets, right. And, and again, out of the 800 municipalities that have, that have deployed inclusionary zoning, 
research would suggest, and I'm just going off of a couple articles I've read, so I don't, I mean, I haven't done the research myself, but those policies of inclusionary zoning that include offsets have been successful maintaining supply and, and, and increasing number of affordable units. Those that do not uh, have ultimately just stymied development, stymied supply, and, and ultimately made housing even less affordable. So uh, it's a really interesting debate. And it's going to get heated, you know, um, as, as the city of Toronto, you know, it's happening all over Canada, all over North America, but, you know, obviously the largest, the largest urban center in Canada, it's getting a lot of attention right now. And it, it's, it's scary for someone that is a real estate nerd, self-proclaimed watching this go down, thinking like, I don't understand how our policy makers and, and politicians are missing this. But anyway, according to Chris, they're not, but they're making that decision anyway, because it's, uh, it's uh, mutually beneficial for them to stymie development and look like they're pro- proposing affordability. I'm not sure I agree with that. That's Chris's opinion. But nevertheless, it's, uh, it's a very, very interesting debate. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to solve it today, though. So maybe maybe we'll wrap here. I think we'll have to, we'll we'll solve this problem on a future episode. So uh, stay tuned. <laughs> and if you know the solution, please shoot us a note. <laughs> Put it in our DMs or whatever. Let us know because uh, we'd love yeah. to hear from you. You can come on the podcast. There's a guarantee. You have the solution. You can be our next guest. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. The call is out there. I think that that's it for this one. Thanks everybody for listening. Thanks to First National for powering the podcast. Thanks to Chris for an interesting conversation. And uh, thanks, Adam. Talk to you guys soon. See everybody. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.